Welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, episode 14, Mountain Chasers. As we start this episode, in the theatre of your mind, have the theme music of Catch Me If You Can playing. In this brilliant film, which I highly recommend, Tom Hanks, a policeman, chases Leonardo DiCaprio, a forger of checks, around the world as he disguises himself as a pilot, a doctor, and a lawyer. Just as you follow Tom Hanks in the film, in this episode we will follow Alexander, as he chases Darius, and then Bessus, into the heart of Central Asia. But before we carry on with the narrative, it's worth us taking a look at the reasons Alexander didn't stop. Why didn't Alexander go home? He was financially secure, he destroyed one of the largest armies assembled on Earth up to this point, he had avenged Athens, and he had taken the richest cities of the Persian Empire, such as the Ionian Greek cities, the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon, Egypt, Babylon, Susa, and Persepolis. The only major Persian city he didn't control was Ecbatana. Surely the sensible move was to stop, but we of course are dealing with Alexander. Alexander had a deep desire to be the greatest person who ever walked on the earth, and he wasn't going to get that reputation by going home. He wanted to explore, to meet people who had never been heard of by the Greeks, to see a new land and do the impossible. These were likely personal motivators, but he just as likely didn't tell anyone else this. He would have instead cited the practical reason. His mission was only half complete. The eastern half of the Persian Empire was still outside of Macedonian control, and perhaps more importantly, Darius had still not been captured. A quote by Machiavelli is quite useful for us to understand Alexander's options. Men should either be treated generously or destroyed, because they take revenge for slight injuries. For heavy ones, they cannot. If Alexander just left, nothing would stop Darius from gathering together another huge army and invading Greece. He must either be crushed or forgiven. Just think of the contrasting styles of Julius Caesar and Augustus with regard to forgiveness. Julius Caesar showed extreme clemency, while Augustus showed brutality. Alexander, at least for the moment, was a firm believer in the forgiveness school of thought, as had been seen by the clemency shown to many cities along our journey, and forgiveness of some Persian generals. Alexander intended to beat, capture, and forgive Darius. He would take control of Darius's empire, but it would make the fusion of the Macedonian and Persian cultures so much easier. Now we know why Alexander had to chase Darius, let us send him on his way in April 330. So Darius was waiting in Medea to see what Alexander would do as he gathered his forces. If Alexander chose to wait in Babylon and Susa, Darius could afford to wait in Medea, and if Alexander marched on Ecbatana, he could adopt scorched earth tactics. He would withdraw to Parthia, Hycania, and Bactria, scorching the earth as he advanced. Aware of the need for speed, he did place his wagons at the Caspian Gates. Alexander began the advance, and he soon heard that Darius was being reinforced by Scythians and Caducians, and after twelve days he arrived in Medea, 
he found no reinforcements were there, and Darius had retreated, as his force was too weak for battle. Having only 7,000 talents of funds, 6,000 infantry, and 3,000 cavalry. Three days' march from Equitana, Alexander found that Darius had been in retreat for five days, so he quickened his pace. While at Equitana, Alexander dismissed his allies, considering the War of the League of Corinth to be at an end. This was now Macedonia, rather than the Greeks, fighting against the Persians. Of course, if the Greeks wanted to carry on, that would be perfectly okay. Alexander then assigned a task to Parmenio. He would transfer the Persian treasury, about 180,000 talents, to Ecbatana, and then take the mercenaries, Thracians, and the cavalry other than the companions to Hycania. Clytus, who had been left behind sick in Susa, would take the Macedonians left behind to guard the treasure, Parthia, while Alexander would advance into Parthia. Alexander marched with such pace that many men dropped out, unable to stand it, while many horses were worked to death, but Alexander would not stop. In eleven days, he reached Ragai, a day's march from the Caspian Gates, but Darius was still ahead. Although he was ahead, this fleeing from Alexander did not exactly strike confidence into the hearts of his soldiers, and many deserted. Alexander began to give up all hope of catching up to Darius, and allowed his men five days' rest. After one day's march, they reached the Caspian Gates, and they passed through on the second day. He heard reports that the country beyond was uninhabited, so he sent out a foraging party. But, as he waited for them to return, some high-ranking deserters arrived from Darius, bringing news. There had been a mutiny in the Persian camp. Nabazanes, a commander of the cavalry, Bessus, satrap of Bactria, and Barsaintis, satrap of Aracotia and Dragiana, had captured and imprisoned Darius. Alexander was once again on the march. Not waiting for the foraging party, he at once set off, taking only the companions, his advanced scouts, and his toughest light infantry, who only took their weaponry and two days' worth of rations. Craterus would follow behind with the other troops. He marched all night until noon the next day, where he briefly rested before setting out on another night march. At dawn of the next day, he reached a recently abandoned Persian camp, and found out that the rumours were true. Darius had been taken prisoner, and Bessus had taken his place, leaving those loyal to Darius to abandon their cause, and surrender to Alexander. Bessus and his men decided to hand over Darius if Alexander chased them, but to muster a force if Alexander did not. Alexander, once again, began his chase. He drove his exhausted men onward, covering much ground in another overnight march, and at noon he reached a camp where the Persians had been the previous day. When it turned out the Persians had continued their march overnight, Alexander needed to set off immediately. He asked the natives if they knew of a shortcut, and luckily, they did. Though it was through deserted land, with no water, Alexander was not too bothered, and ordered them to act as guides. Alexander realised that the march would be too quick for the infantry, 
and so dismounted 500 of his cavalry and mounted the toughest of his light infantry in their place. During this march, Plutarch relates an anecdote where several Macedonians were carrying water on their mules when they saw Alexander almost passing out due to thirst. They quickly brought over the water, and Alexander asked them who they were taking the water to. They replied, For our own sons, but so long as your life is safe, we can have other children, even if we lose these. Alexander took the helmet, but saw his men staring longingly at the water, and gave it back, saying, If I am the only one to drink, the rest will lose heart. See Plutarch, Alexander, chapter 42. This encouraged his men, and spurred them on. He'd set off at dusk, and covered fifty miles during the night, and reached the Persians at dawn. Only a few resisted, most fled. Bessus tried to flee with Darius, but when Alexander was close, Nebuzanes and Barsaintis struck him and escaped with 600 horsemen. Darius's wounds proved fatal, and he died shortly afterwards, before Alexander could meet him. In Plutarch's version, Darius was found by a Macedonian called Polystratus. Darius asked for some water, and Polystratus gave it to him. Darius then said, This is the final stroke of misfortune, that I should accept a service from you, and not be able to return it. But Alexander will reward you for your kindness, and the gods will repay him for his courtesy towards my mother, and my wife, and my children. And so through you, I give him my hand. He then took Polystratus's hand, and died. See Plutarch, Alexander, chapter 43. Alexander mourned the death of Darius, and ordered his body to be taken to Persepolis, so it could be buried in the royal tombs. Alexander had wanted to capture Darius, so likely he could forgive him and keep him as a captive, but his death had a similar effect. Alexander was now the heir of Darius, which would give him legitimacy. He would now have to avenge Darius and chase Bessus. Here I'll quote Arian's examination of the life of Darius. Such was the end of Darius. He died in July during the archonship of Aristophon in Athens. In military matters, he was the feeblest and most incompetent of men. In other spheres, his conduct appears to have been moderate and decent. Though the truth may well be that, as his ascension to the throne coincided with the declaration of war of Macedon and Greece, he had no opportunity to play the tyrant. In his subjects, he could hardly have treated them with the usual cruelty of an oriental despot, even had he wished to do so. His life was an unbroken series of disasters from the moment of his ascension to the throne. He was immediately faced by the defeat of his satraps and their mounted troops on the Granicus, the loss of Ionia and Aeolus swiftly followed, with the two fridges, Lydia, and all of Caria except Halicarnassus. Soon afterwards, Halicarnassus too was gone, and the whole coast as far as Sicilia. Then came his own defeat at Isis, and the bitter sight of his mother, wife, and children as prisoners in enemy hands. The loss of Phoenicia and Egypt 
was followed by the debacle at Arbella, his own shameful flights from the field, and the destruction of the mightiest army of the whole East. Then, a homeless fugitive in the land he once ruled, ruthlessly betrayed by his own guards, a monarch in chains, contemptuously smuggled away from the scene of his former glory. He was finally murdered by the treachery of those most bound in duty to serve him. Such was the unhappy life of Darius. Dead, he was more fortunate, for he was buried in the royal tomb. His children were given by Alexander the same upbringing and education they would have had if he had still been king, and his daughter became Alexander's wife. He was about 50 when he died. See Arian, Book 3, Chapter 22. Alexander was with a small group of his best troops when Darius died. Remember that there were other groups of soldiers, one under the command of Quaterius and another led by Parmenio, while Alexander's own force was spread out. After he reunited his troops with Quaterius, he advanced into Hycania, which is by the Caspian Sea. The Caspian, I'm sure you know, is a very large lake to the east of the Black Sea. However, the Greeks did not know this, and so I find it incredibly interesting to see what they thought this body of water was. Plutarch suggests that Alexander thought it was an overflow of the Sea of Azov, the body of water next to the Crimea, just off the Black Sea. Plutarch dismisses the idea, saying, However, various geographers had already discovered the truth, and many years before Alexander's expedition, they had recorded their conclusion that this was the most northerly of four gulfs, which run inland from the outer ocean, and was called the Hycanian or Caspian Sea. See Plutarch, Alexander, chapter 44. Ah, yes. The famous Caspian Gulf. Alexander wanted to come to his own conclusions, but he died before he could finish his fleet. I'll remind you of this towards the end of our little podcast. Alexander may have thought it an overflow of the Sea of Azov at one point, but Arian states that the discovery of the Persian Gulf made him suspect otherwise. J.R. Hamilton believes it to be Aristotle who told Alexander that the Caspian was not a gulf. Now, just after Alexander had united his forces, he once again divided them, briefly, to subdue the Taporian Mountains, and to catch any Persian mercenaries that were rumoured to be there. He couldn't find any, and advanced to Zadrakata, where he reunited with some of them, where he received many high-ranking Persian defectors, as well as some delegates from Greece. As they had before, the Greeks asked for Greek mercenaries, who were now prisoners of war, to be returned, but Alexander refused. As far as Alexander was concerned, Greeks who had fought against their country were no better than criminals. Instead, Alexander told the Greeks to either join his force, or see to their own safety. They joined him, and he also asked for an officer to give the prisoners safe conduct. Alexander next advanced into Mardia. He quelled the region and was met by more Greeks, only these were looking to make a deal with the Persians. Alexander let all of them who were not part of the League of Corinth leave, but the others 
he forced into paid service. Alexander then returned to Zadrakasa in Hycania, and went through Parthia to the borders of Arya. He was then met by the satrap of the province, Satibazanes, at the town of Susia. Alexander confirmed his office, and sent him back with a companion and forty javelin men. This is important, remember it. While there, reports came in of the activities of Bessus. Bessus, who had escaped to Bactria, was proclaiming himself king of Asia. He dressed himself in the royal fashion, and was gathering together a reasonable force, having Parthians, Bactrians, as well as Scythian reinforcements. Alexander was at once on his way to Bactria with his whole force. Well, on the way, reports came in that Satibazanes had resulted, killing the companion and the forty men, and was arming and concentrating the native Aryans at the provincial capital. Artakoana, and assuming Alexander would leave, was planning to join and reinforce Bessus. Alexander was not amused. He gave command of the troops on the spot to Craterus, and marched back with some of his men as quickly as he could. He covered 75 miles within two days, taking Satibazanes completely by surprise. As soon as word came that Alexander was at hand, everyone abandoned the revolt. They fled to the hills, well, the villages anyway, where they were rounded up by Alexander's men. Some of the rebels were put into slavery, others were killed. Satibazanes escaped. Alexander reunited with Craterus, and then advanced to Zarangia, which was controlled by Bar Scientis, who you'll remember was involved in the murder of Darius. Alexander took the territory, Bar Scientis fled to the Indians west of the river Indus, but the Indians returned him to Alexander, who killed him. Alexander then advanced into the land of the Ariaspans. When Cyrus was expanding his own empire 200 years before, these people had been kind to him, and Alexander rewarded the Ariaspans for this, treating them with the utmost respect. This policy was clearly influenced by the death of Darius. You can see Alexander playing the part of successor to perfection. This was part of Alexander's grand conciliatory policy, which tried to unite the Persian and Macedonian peoples, which we will deal with more later. Alexander continued his subduing of various tribes on his way to Bactria, until a report came that Satibazanes had been reinforced with 2,000 cavalry and had returned to Arya, and had again gone into revolt. Alexander would not go in person this time, sending the Persian Artabasis along with a pair of companions, as well as ordering the satrap of Parthia to help out. They were more successful than Alexander, managing to kill Satibazanes. Alexander continued on his way to Bactria, crossing what Arian calls the Indian Caucasus. Considering the mountain range and extension of the Caucasus around modern Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, we today call these mountains the Hindu Kush. This was a hard slog. It was by now the winter of 330-329, and Alexander was marching through snowdrifts. Bessus tried scorched earth tactics to stop Alexander advancing into Bactria, hoping that a lack of supplies 
would force Alexander to stop. Bessus only had around 7,000 troops, no match for Alexander, but Alexander just kept going. Bessus retreated across the river Oxus and burned his boats, hoping this would stop Alexander. Unfortunately for Bessus, doing this left Bactria undefended, which of course led it to surrender to Alexander, who then made for the Oxus. The Oxus, the modern Amu Darya, is almost 1,500 miles long and flows into the Aral Sea. Interestingly, look at photographs of the Aral Sea. Formerly the world's fourth largest lake, it is now less than 10% of its original size, and has been called one of the world's worst environmental disasters. It's something I do know about, but yet I'm shocked every time I hear it. Anyway, the Oxus. It's a deep, wide river, with a strong current and a sandy bottom, making it impossible to drive piles into its bed, making it impossible to build a bridge. Although, the bigger problem is that there are barely any trees in the Eurasian steppe to collect wood for a bridge, or boats. First things first, Alexander dismissed his troops who were unfit for service, along with the Thessalian volunteers. Then he got to work on how to cross the river. His solution was to have the hides, which served as tents for the men, collected, to fill them with dry rubbish. He then sued them together to make them watertight. Within five days, his men had crossed the Oxus. Bessus had again failed to hold back Alexander. Alexander was en route to Bessus at his quickest pace, when reports came in that Spitamenes and Asaphernes were planning to arrest Bessus. These reports were inaccurate. They already had arrested Bessus. Alexander slowed down the assault and sent Ptolemy ahead to negotiate on his behalf. After covering a ten-day march in four days, Ptolemy reached where Spitifernes and Asaphernes were holding Bessus. Ptolemy announced that if they surrendered, there would be no punishment to any Persians. They promptly surrendered. They all returned to Alexander, and Ptolemy asked Alexander how he wanted Bessus to be brought to him. Alexander replied that he wanted Bessus to be stripped and put in a dog collar, and placed on the right of a road which his whole army would march past. The orders were carried out. Alexander stopped his chariot when he passed Bessus, and asked him why he had treated Darius, his king, kinsman, and benefactor, so poorly, seizing him and putting him in chains before killing him. Bessus replied that many had done this to Darius, not just him, and that he had done it to please Alexander and save their lives. Alexander ordered him to be whipped, and at every lash, a crier would repeat his excuses. He was then sent to Bactria to be executed. Plutarch states that he was executed by being tied to the tops of two trees, which were bent so that their tops almost met. The trees were then sprung back, ripping Bessus in half. This marks a change in our narrative, as the Macedonian and Greek campaign against Persia is now over. Rather than running a comprehensive narrative, which I have been doing for a while, 
In the next episode, I'm going to condense Alexander's campaign in Central Asia into a few topics, mostly several plots and conspiracies. After that, we'll resume the campaign narrative in India. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can visit us online at thehistoryofpodcast.com. I'll see you next week when we get into the darker side of Alexander.